Good morning. I invite and encourage you to turn with me to Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is God's holy word. A few weeks ago, we covered Psalm 14. And in Psalm 14, uh, the singer asserts that there is no one who does good, not even one. Now, if that is true, if David was right, and I told you before, he was, I think he was, that no one does good, not even one. If Psalm 14 is true in what it asserts, then Psalm 15 here rightly asks a subsequent question. Who can get close to God? If no one does good, not even one, then who can get close to God? Since there's no one who is perfect, since sin has corrupted all of us, then who can enjoy your creator's presence? Who can enjoy the presence of God? Now, if you, if you have not asked yourself that question, if you've never asked yourself, if no one does good, if I am even corrupt, how can I enjoy life in the presence of my creator? If you've never asked yourself that question, it is time you had. And I hope you will today. Those who walk in love are the ones who have the right, the right to be with God. You want to be with God, you have to walk in love. And I hope you will see that as we look through the progression of this ancient psalm. Because what David does is three things in this psalm. He asks a question, he offers an answer, and then he makes a promise. He takes us through a question, he provides an answer, and then he gives a promise. And here's what the question is. Basically, who can... I've already kind of said it. Let me restate it. The question is, who can enter and remain in the presence of a holy God? Who can do that? And he begins in the first verse by asking it just like this. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? And he says the same way in a poetically different way, sense. Uh, makes the same statement in a poetic, poetically different way. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Now, I want to make three observations about that opening question. And the first observation is that it is a practical question to ask. The second observation is it is a terrible question. And the third observation is it is a beautiful question. To ask a question like that is practical it's terrible. 
and it's beautiful. Here's how it's practical. I want you to imagine in ancient times that this psalm was employed, maybe even memorized and recited to help worshipers entering the tabernacle or eventually the temple and then eventually different synagogues around the ancient world. Imagine knowing this verse and being able to recite it to yourself as you prepare to enter the house of God to offer your sacrifices. Think of Psalm 139 where David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The Psalms as prayers, they encourage introspection. They encourage self-examination. That's one of the gifts that God gives us in the book of Psalms. A way to examine yourself. A creative, poetic, prayerful, melodic way of examining yourself. It was Paul to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 who said something very similar. He said, before you take communion, because you're making a mess of the whole event. Before you take communion, he said, let a person examine himself, then go and eat the bread and drink the cup. So it is simply a practical thing to ask yourself, Lord, how may I dwell in your, how may I be with you? Very practical thing because immediately you're starting to think, you're becoming self-aware, which you know you need. You need to be self-aware. Secular professions, even the medical profession now realizes we need self-aware people taking care of patients. We need self-aware, others-aware types of people to take care of others. Well, the Psalms help you become aware of yourself and of God and of other people. But not only is asking a question like this very practical, it's also terrible. Here's why it's terrible. Because if you know your own corruption, if you know how sin has affected you, then God's holiness should be overwhelming. Because it says, who may approach you on your holy hill or the hill of your holiness in the original language? Moses was, the Bible tells us that Moses was the most humble man who was, who was living at the time, who who interacted with God in such an intimate way that nobody else in his time did. And yet, even to Moses, God said to him in Exodus 33, you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. It was Isaiah who asked a similar question. As Isaiah chapter 33, he said, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? This is what the scriptures call the creator. He is a consuming fire. So the question is practical, but the question is also terrible, if you're honest with yourself. When you think of God's perfection and his holiness and his light and his truth and his goodness, and you start considering yourself, it's a terrible question to ask. But it's also beautiful. Because such a question illustrates the uniqueness of the Bible's personal God. And you don't see this in any other religion. This is a deeply personal question. Look at it. Look at verse 1 again. He's not simply saying, who can enter the temple? Who can walk into the cafeteria and sit down and worship in deep run church? 
He's not simply saying who can survive and not be struck dead in the presence of God. He's saying more than that. He uses the word sojourn. Who shall sojourn in your tent? Now, the word sojourn in the original language, it was a word used throughout the Old Testament to describe what it was like as a stranger to live in a foreign country and be hosted there. It says many times that Abram sojourned in Egypt, that as a stranger, he was hosted by the Egyptians. He was even even a stranger, the Bible tells us, in the very land that God said he would inherit. So who can sojourn in God's dwelling place? And then he says also, who can dwell? Who can dwell with God? This is, this is bigger than just entering a worship space. He's, he's talking about living with God. He's talking about abiding with, walking with God. This is very personal. He's seeing God as a hospitable host. A God that brings you into his house and waits upon you and serves you and, and doesn't kick you out. You see, the Bible is not and never was concerned primarily with uh, social conformity. You know, conformity to certain behaviors and, and religious exercise and tradition. And if, if, if you see it that way, you miss the point of it. You miss the point of the Old Testament. You miss the point of the whole thing. It's always about relationship. And you see it right here in this question. The question is ultimately getting at a relationship. How do I dwell with my creator? How do I abide with my creator? Exist with him, walk with him. Now, let me just ask you a question. When in your life have you been encouraged to ask a question like this? Think about your education. Think about your training. Think about different environments you've been in. Think about the media and popular culture, and entertainment, and politics, and government, when have you been encouraged to ask this type of a question? Or where? You can, you can be vocal if you have any answers. Do you mean, you said in times of trial... Do you mean that personally? You have asked that question of yourself? Okay. Okay. Now, what I find so interesting is that for a talkative bunch of people, you don't have any answers. And I was, yes. Okay, so maybe, maybe historically in our country, the civil rights movement may have, may have been an attempt at this. And even within the civil rights movement, there were leaders who really had a God consciousness and some who did not. But what I find interesting is most of you have nothing to say. And, 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 and that's not an insult. That's an observation. Because in your education and in your training for your work and for the things that you do, And in the news and in the media and in movies and in popular culture, 
nobody is asking this question. We're asking lots of questions about how to deal with injustice and how to feed the poor and how to get along. But nobody is asking the question, how do we draw near to our creator? How do we love and serve and please him? Nobody teaches us how to ask these questions. The proof of it is when our brother Steve asked the kids, have you ever told God that you loved him or sent God a valentine? None of them had an answer. These are talkative, bright kids. If you ask them about Bible verses and Bible characters and cartoons and toys and things in nature, they, they have answers like that. But when you ask them, and a lot of these kids are, are, are growing up in good Christian homes, and if you ask them, how do you tell God you love him? They had nothing to say. We do not think that way. We do not encourage one another and train ourselves and train our young people, nor were we trained when we were young, how to ask this most fundamental question, how can I be with my creator? How can I relate to my God? But unless you ask this, because we ask so many questions, right? What should I do when I grow up? What do I need to study? Where do I need to study? Who should I be friends with? Who should I love? To whom should I be married? What kind of church? What church should I go to? How much money should I use and spend on my pleasures? How much money should I give away? Sacrifice? We have asked so many questions. But unless you ask this question first, your answers to all of those other important questions will be incomplete. So David, in a prayer, he asks the greatest question. But now he meditates, he meditates, and through his meditation, through verses 2 through 5, through his meditation, he formulates an answer. Here's the question, how can we be with God? But here's the answer. The answer is that God's holiness requires our holiness, particularly in how we love our neighbor. That's what he focuses on. This is very interesting. And then what David does through verses 2 through 5 is he gives us, check this out, 10 stipulations, 10 conditions on how to be with God. Have you ever heard the number 10 used before in the Bible for the number of stipulations for what God wants and what God, God doesn't want sound like the Ten Commandments to you, maybe? Now, he doesn't quote the Ten Commandments, but there is a lot of similarity. Now, here, here's what I find interesting, though. They all relate to loving your neighbor. David says, how, do, how can you be close to God? Well, wouldn't you naturally think he's going to quote the first three or four commandments? Don't worship any other God. Don't use God's name in an inappropriate way. Honor God's day, the Sabbath, as holy. He doesn't go near any of that. Isn't that interesting? Kind of counterintuitive. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about any of the commandments directly related to God. What does he do? He, he quotes all the commandments. He paraphrases all the commandments that relate to loving other people as yourself. Let's just walk through them really quickly. There's 10 of them. He starts by saying, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. The second one, and speaks truth in his heart. And the third one, who does not slander with his tongue. The fourth one, and does no evil to his neighbor. The fifth one, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Now, scholars all say that is a really difficult phrase to translate. What it seems to mean is somebody who does not disgrace his friend by raking up something about that friend that, that shames her or shames him. Okay? 
Somebody who doesn't rake up a bad report about somebody else. Who doesn't slander. Also says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. That's the sixth one. And then the seventh one, but who honors those who fear the Lord. So, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. And this isn't favoritism, right? To despise some people and honor others. No, it's moral discernment. David is saying that the kind of person that can enter the presence of God is the kind of person that calls out evil for evil and, and, and ugliness for ugliness and doesn't encourage it and, and, and says what it is and is open about it and at the same time encourages what is good and right and beautiful. Somebody that has the discernment to know the difference between good and evil and the courage and the willingness to speak up about it and to be wise about who you associate with, wise about what you support and what you deny. The eighth one, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. I want to park on that for a second. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. This is, this is a person who is willing to keep her promises. This is a person who is willing to do what he says he will do, even when it hurts. You ever, you ever try and back out of a promise or a, or a covenant or a contract when you saw after a while it wasn't going well for you? Yeah? This is a person, this is a person who even when it looks like it's going to hurt, this person remains true to what was promised. Even when she has to take the fall. This is someone who can be in the presence of God, David says. The ninth one, who does not put out his money at interest. This means not financially taking advantage of somebody who needs your help. And finally, the tenth one, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Similar sort of a thing. So, Psalm 14 illustrates how all of us are corrupt in every part of our being. How all of us in word and thought and deed are affected by the nature of original sin that we inherit from Adam and Eve. But what's so beautiful about Psalm 15 is it's just the opposite. David is giving you a picture of a person who is perfect in word and thought and deed. And we read about it earlier. Later on, the prophet Micah would ask the same question, a very similar question, and get almost the same answer. Micah 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? And the answer he offers was very much like what David says here. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is a beautiful person that David is describing. This is a strong person. This is a good person and this is a true person. Because of their behavior? Nah, not really. Look, character. This is a person with integrity, inside and out. This is a true person. 
This is the ultimate human being. This is a heart of gold. This is someone whose actions, whose behavior reflects the condition of his heart. So the righteous may dwell in God's presence because the righteous love their neighbors well. That's basically what David is saying. Neil Young, decades ago, sang this song about a heart of gold and how he couldn't find one. Keeps me searching for a heart of gold and I'm growing old, is what what the song repeated. It is hard to find this type of a heart, this type of a person who loves his neighbor well, who loves her neighbor well. And here's, I, this is why I think. Because the essence of love is to give rather than to take. The essence of love is, is to serve another person rather than to consume what you can get out of them. I'll explain it this way because Jesus illustrated it perfectly. In Luke chapter 18 um, is recorded this account in which a ruler, a wealthy ruler approaches Jesus and asks him almost again the same question. This is the third version of this question that we've heard today. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now it's a little bit more specific of a question. Luke tells us, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not. Now, what do you think? He's going to say, love God, serve God and worship him only. He doesn't eat the same thing. He doesn't go there. What does he do? You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the man said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Luke told us. So, What's the point? Is that wealth is inherently bad? That you know, material wealth is bad? No, nope, that's not the point. Because you know what? If Jesus asked you that question, it would probably be something else that he asked you to give up. Jesus asked me to give up many things, but it, I've never had a lot of money, so I, he never asked me, <laughs> never told me to do what he's telling this man. The point is not that money is bad and is no good or that having a lot of it is bad. No, that that misses the point. Here's the point. The man's law-keeping hadn't cost him much. He had kept the rules all of his life. He had followed the law all of his life, but it really hadn't cost him a lot. So Jesus, knowing the heart of people, found something that would cost the man because he loved his wealth. And he said, okay, you want to walk with me? You want to follow me? Give up what you think is most precious. Give, just give it up. Give it to the poor. And he couldn't do it. He, he couldn't give himself completely to others, to their well-being. He, can, he could behave. He could, he, could, he could be very well-behaved and well-cultured and very polite and, and very honest. 
even to the point of wanting to approach God and say, how can I have eternal life? But when God said, okay, here's one thing that you're missing. Give up what you think is most dear to you. He couldn't do it because he wasn't ultimately a man of love, which involves giving, not receiving, offering yourself, serving rather than taking and hoarding. It's as if through Jesus, God is saying, you want to dwell with me? Do you want my peace and forgiveness and healing in your life? Do you want to be reconciled to me? Do you want to have my spirit upon you and my truth and light and power upon you so that you can be full and complete with joy and to be a blessing to other people and to be the person you were created to be? Do you want all these things? Then love your neighbor well, according to my standards. Not your own standards. Not love according to what you think love is. The love, the definition of love that serves you. You love people according to my definition of what love is. You relate to others as a servant, not as a consumer. We were just watching with some of, the young, some of our younger kids, uh, Beauty and the Beast, just this week. And I realized, sp- specifically with this fairy tale... Because you know, all the old fairy tales, there's this whole like finding true love, you know, gets you what you need in life. Like your, your life isn't quite right. There's danger. What saves you is true love. You see it in all the fairy tales. I really appreciate this fairy tale and how it defines and illustrates love. And as you consider this, you start realizing fairy tales are actually more real than they are fake. And here is how it's illustrated. What restores the beast to his humanity? What is it that makes him human again? Sacrificial love. You just said it. What, it's, not, it's, it it's not that he gets a girlfriend. It, it's not that he falls in love. And falling in love and finding his true partner, his soulmate, is what saves him. No, he gives her up. He loves her enough to say, you need to go. He gives her up and then he defends her and he sacrifices his own safety and his very life to protect her. It is sacrificial love that restores the beast to humanity and through the beast, everybody in the house, right? All all the other cursed people in the house that turned into, you know, doorknobs and, and, and brooms and, you know, whatever things like that, candelabras. Harpsichords, they're all restored to their humanity through the beast's sacrificial love. And by the way, Paul in Romans 8 says that that is what's going to happen to all of creation when humanity is restored to its true nature. It will impact the entire universe. But it's a sacrificial love. It's a sacrificial love That is true love. That is God's definition of love. And if you still lack that, my friends, if you're listening to this definition of love and you're like, wow, I have not loved that way in my marriage, in my friendships. I have not loved my neighbors or my coworkers or even my children. I've not even even loved my parents that way. My version of love is... Is, is far more superficial than that. If, if you see that, if, if you're still lacking that type of love for your neighbor, it's because you're lacking a deeper kind of love. Somebody said to Jesus, hey, what's the greatest commandment? 
Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The great commandment and the second greatest commandment. So you see, if you just go in reverse, logically, if you don't love your neighbor well, it's because you don't love God well, who told you to love your neighbor. If you are in a conflict, that won't cease. I promise you, at the heart of the conflict is an unwillingness to love God as you truly should. A lack of love for God is always at the heart of an inability to be reconciled to one another. It is never just about you and other people. It is always about you and God. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 14, if you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, there are all sorts of reasons for why we obey people, right? Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's, it's for gain, for motivation, or lustful. Right? There's all sorts of reasons why, why we find ourselves obeying people, but, but, but what drives obedience purely and perfectly more than anything is love. Love, dri- love motivates obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the command Jesus gave them, in that setting, in the upper room, he said to them, love one, <laughs> love one another. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Love one another. Without a love for God, without the love of God, your relationships are on life support. They are gasping for air. Whether it's culturally, you know, in our, in our society, black and white, Ethnically, whether it's political, you know, whether it's issues in your family that you've, you haven't been able to resolve with people for decades, whatever it is, without a love of God for you and a love for God reciprocated back to him, our, our relationships are on shaky ground. They have no foundation. And, and our plans for justice in the world and in our community... They're, they're, they're built on the wrong foundation. We're doing the right things for the wrong reasons. They have no foundation. There's no heart of gold because we deprive ourselves of the very heart of God. Until we embrace the heart of God, you cannot have a heart of gold. But David offers a promise. He poses a question. He meditates and leads us through this very, very simple yet profound answer. You want to be with God, you've got to love one another well. But then he closes with a promise. And this is the promise. If you walk in love, you're a son or a daughter forever. If you choose to walk in love, this kind of love, you're a son or a daughter forever. Because he says at the end of verse 5, he closes it by saying, He who does these things, she who does these things, shall never be moved. Now, in the original Hebrew, it reads something more like this. He who does these things will not be shaken forever. Shall not be moved forever. Meaning, when God brings you into his house, 
you don't get evicted. There's never an eviction notice. He doesn't change his mind and say, well, I let you in, but now I'm kicking you out. You were my daughter, but no longer. Get lost. Read what it says. Will not be shaken forever. It's kind of like in the C.S. Lewis Narnia series. series. Once a king or queen in Narnia, always a king or queen. The status doesn't change is what the promise says here. How is that even possible? Because you may be saying, well, what is is David schizophrenic? Is is he saying at one point, um, man, only a perfect person can be in God's presence uh, when he had just said that nobody's perfect in the previous psalm? What's, What's going on? How is this possible that somebody could never be evicted from the presence of God, can never be kicked out of God's house with this kind of a status? Well, let me go back to... This one condition that he mentions, the person who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Jesus took an oath to his own hurt and never reneged. Jesus agreed with his heavenly father that he would come down and take on human flesh and live here and sacrifice himself. Sacrifice himself for people who obviously don't love this way. Not perfectly, right? Because you know that on your best day, you're not the person that David is describing here, even on your best day. But Jesus was. Jesus loved God perfectly. And what's the proof that Jesus loved God perfectly? The cross. Where he served us on the cross is the proof that Jesus loved God perfectly. And the evidence that he loves you perfectly. Jesus took an oath that ultimately hurt him. Go read Genesis 15 because I'm not going to get into it now, but if you read Genesis 15, you find out that God told Abram in the very beginning that he would make a covenant with Abraham's descendant and that if the covenant was broken, God would take the fall. And the cross is proof of that. Check it out, Genesis 15. Maybe someday we'll, we'll talk about it in detail. And we read about this earlier in 1 John, where the apostle said, he kind of sums it all up. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So who may dwell in God's presence? Jesus. Jesus can dwell in God's presence. And you. And you, if you are, as the New Testament says again and again and again, in Christ. Ever see that phrase if you're familiar with the New Testament? In Christ, in Christ, you see it all over the place? It, it's not just figurative. It is literal. By faith, you become in Christ. You get wrapped up with Jesus. His cloak is so big that when he, when he closes it up, you're all in there. We're all in there together. In Christ means that you too can enter the presence of God as a daughter, as a son, and never be served an eviction notice. Once a king or queen, once a son or daughter, 
always a son or daughter in the presence of God. The commentator Derek Kidner, I'll close with this. He said, the qualities of this psalm described are those that God creates in a person. Not qualities that he finds in a person. So you remain in his house because he bestows these qualities upon you simply by Jesus exchange, changing places with you. You get Jesus' qualities. You get Jesus' perfection to love your neighbor perfectly. It's an identity change. It's a status change offered by God. And as you begin to realize that this has changed your identity, you begin to live differently. And that's when you actually desire to be this person. And you will see as you walk with God and you walk in this kind of love step by step, year by year, you begin to see I am becoming the person that David is talking about. And one day when Jesus returns, there won't be this veil. I will see him even as he sees me, is how Paul put it. Those who walk in love, in this kind of love, in a sacrificial giving love, these are the people who have the right to be with God. So, embrace the love of God. Maybe you've never done this before. Maybe you know a lot about the Bible, but you've never told God, I love you. Thank you for loving me. Embrace the love of God. And dwell in his presence. And let it change you. And just by faith, start walking with him one step at a time, one day at a time. Allow the love of God to embrace you and walk with him and you will begin to see that you can love other people in a remarkable way. Maybe the news won't cover that kind of love. But Jesus sees it. He knows. And one day, it will not be, it will not be um, the exception. It will be the norm. It will be the way of the universe, the way of humanity, the way of culture, of art and engineering and relationships. It will be this kind of love. So I look forward to that. You know, and, and I look forward to seeing what we're all going to be like when that happens. But I love every week and every year watching us become more like this person, Jesus, who lived this way. It is a joy to see us growing up as children who can't be kicked out of the house but are starting to mature and starting to look like our Heavenly Father and our big brother Jesus. So in his name, let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this beautiful picture. Yes, it is practical. Yes, it is even terrible. But it is beautiful of what restored humanity will look like, will think like, and how restored humanity will act We know that it is a far cry from that, but there is hope because we know what Jesus looks like. We know what he said and what he did, and we want to become like him. But in faith, help us to embrace the love of Christ and to live in that love and to offer that love to one another. Amen.